video and from that graphic, we are in a sermon series called The Church Just Wants Your Money. Now, if you are here, which you are, it means you are in one of two camps. One is that maybe you were here last week, and so you heard the first message in the series, and you actually decided to come back, which is awesome, and I feel very encouraged by that. But you might be in the second camp, which is you have no idea what we did last week, and this is all new to you, and now you're wondering what in the world you got into, and you have your hand in your pocket trying to cover your wallet at this point. Now, whether you're in camp one or camp two, again, we are so glad that you are here. And what I want you to know about this message series title is that it's totally tongue-in-cheek, but it's just something that maybe all of us have thought before. Maybe it's something we've heard other people say before. And so what I want to make clear today is that we don't want something from you. We want something for you. And we believe that our finances and our possessions and our attitude about them are so very closely connected to our spiritual health and our spiritual growth. And that's why Jesus spent so much time in the Gospels talking about these things. It's because he knew they would be the biggest competitor for our hearts, right? When we look at where we're going to put our faith, where we're going to put our trust, one of the biggest competitors tends to be our possessions, our finances, and our money. But God makes it clear in the Bible that we are to trust in him alone. But I think if we're honest, every one of us would say we struggle with this temptation to put our trust in our bank accounts, in our net worth, in what we can accumulate. The Bible makes it clear, God says that we are to find our security in him, and yet we often have this temptation to try to accumulate enough so that we can feel secure, so that we can somehow be bulletproof against whatever could happen in our life. The, God, the Bible also tells us that we will only be satisfied in God. We'll only be satisfied when we connect to him, when we're in a living relationship with him. And yet I think every one of us struggles with this idea that, you know, maybe we can just buy our way to satisfaction. You know, think about all the advertisements that you saw this past week. Or maybe you're going to tune into football this afternoon or Monday night and think about the ads that you'll see for cars, for phones, for all sorts of things. Almost every one of them tries to convince us that we will never be satisfied, we will never be fulfilled, we will never be truly happy until we buy their product. The Bible also tells us that God wants us to live with open hands. All the things that he's given us, he wants us to hold them lightly and to live lives of radical generosity. But what we tend to do along through our life is we tend to close our hands and to hold on to things tightly. We cling to them and try to keep them for ourselves. And so I believe this is one of the areas that we have to be extra intentional about. It's something that we have to be willing to talk about as a church. And we need to listen to what God has to say. And so if you were here last week, we talked about something called the treasure principle. And it's taken from Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 19. It's where Jesus says, do not store up treasures on earth because they are just going to rot and they're going to fade away. But he says, instead, you should store up treasures in heaven because they will last forever. So there's a guy named Randy Alcorn, and he wrote this short little book called The Treasure Principle. 
And out of that passage from Matthew 6, he brings this principle to the forefront, something that we need to live out in our lives in order to honor God and to live for him. And the treasure principle says you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Right? You can save up, you can accumulate as much as you want in this world, but once you die, it's not going with you. But what he says, too, is that Jesus says you can store up treasures in heaven, which means you can make an eternal investment. It means you can place your resources in God's hands, and they will last. They will make an eternal impact. They'll continue to pay out dividends into the future. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Now, you might say, well, what in the world does treasure in heaven look like? What is that about? What do you really mean? I believe it's investing into God's kingdom so that people hear the gospel, so that their lives are changed, but their eternity is changed, and so that heaven becomes a more crowded place. You see, that's a treasure that lasts forever as we increase the number of people who have a saving relationship with Jesus. You know, we are meant to live for so much more than just this life. So last week, we talked about two keys that help us live out this treasure principle. And the first important key to remember is that God is the owner. We are his money managers. God owns everything. The Bible makes it clear this is not only things we can see, it's things we can't see, and it's even us ourselves. Everything belongs to God in the first place. We don't really own anything, even though we like to feel and think that we do. God has just temporarily entrusted what we have to our care. And the key word there is entrusted. He doesn't just give it to us, no strings attached. He entrusts it, which means there is some responsibility that we have to do with it what he wants us to do with it. You see, when we start to think we own what we have or we deserve what we have or even that we earned what we have, it should be a huge red flag because the Bible also makes it clear the only way we can even earn anything, the only way that we can buy anything is because God gives us that ability. So everything belongs to him. And he wants us to live open-handed to live lives of radical generosity because that's precisely how he chooses to treat us. He is a God of radical generosity. He gives and he gives and he gives and he stopped at nothing until he gave us his only son who died on the cross so that we could be made free, so that we could be forgiven and so that we could have life. And now he calls us to live similarly generously. Don't get so caught up with your net worth. Don't get caught up with how many toys you have. Don't get caught up with trying to keep up with the Joneses. When we remember God is the owner and we're just his managers, then we, we understand our proper role. I mean, think about an investment manager. Their job is to take the assets of the owner and do with them what the owner wants. That's what we're supposed to do to honor God by investing in what matters most to him. He wants us to invest in his kingdom. 
into his mission. And I think by doing that, we also resist our tendency to be selfish and to be short-sighted along the way. Now, the second key to living out the treasure principle is that my heart always goes where I put God's money. Remember, Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So last week, we talked about if we want a pretty accurate and quick spiritual checkup, if we want to know if we are growing in our faith, where we're at in our relationship with God, one of the best places to look is in our finances. And the other place to look is our calendar. You see, how we spend our money and how we spend our time is an accurate gauge of where we are at spiritually, where our heart is today. If you want to have a heart for the things of God, if you want to be about what matters most to him, well then invest your money and your time into those things and your heart will follow. That's why I think the best antidote to greed and selfishness, something I think we all struggle with from time to time, one of the best things to do is to give something away. If you ever feel extra possessive, like everything belongs to you, if you find yourself with your hands clinging tightly, if you find yourself always comparing yourself to your neighbor or to someone else, wishing you had what they had, one of the best things you can do in that instance is to give something away. Because when we give, it mirrors God's heart. And when we give, it repositions our heart. It recalibrates our life back to where it should be. Well, today I want to talk about two more important keys to living for God and doing what he calls us to do. And the first key is this. Heaven is not heaven, not the earth, is your home. Heaven, not the earth, is your home. You see, where we choose to invest our money, where we choose to store up our treasure, depends on where we consider our home to be. You know, think for a moment or imagine for a moment that you're on a business trip, an extended business trip overseas somewhere, maybe in Europe. So you have your hotel room and you're thinking, you know, this isn't ideal. There's some things I wish were different here. Now, you're probably not going to go out and remodel your hotel room, even though you wish it was different, right? You're not going to go get new furniture. You're not going to replace the carpet. No, because it's not your true home. You only do those things in the place you consider your real home. If you're on that business trip and you pick up some great souvenirs and maybe a great piece of artwork, you're going to ship it back home. You're not going to just store it up in your hotel room. See, I think one of the biggest barriers to us living a generous life is the illusion that this earth is our true home. The Bible again and again makes it clear that we are just passing through. The writer of Hebrews says that we are from a better country, a heavenly country. He also says that we should consider ourselves pilgrims or strangers or even foreigners as we are here on earth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are ambassadors representing our true country, which is heaven. Now, I think one of the 
causes of why this is often hard for us to do, why it's hard for us to remember that this isn't our true home, is because of our vision of what heaven will be like. I mean, think about many of the caricatures and cartoons that we have seen ever since we were kids. I mean, oftentimes what heaven looks like is very boring and dull. Like we're up in a cloud with a tiny little harp and little wings on our back. And like, who wants that, right? But if you read scripture, you see that heaven is better than anything we could ever imagine. I mean, imagine what you think it's like and then multiply it by a million. Heaven will not disappoint us. It'll be better than we think. And the best thing is that we will be in God's presence forever, which is where we were created to be in the first place. It only makes sense to store up treasure where our true home is. Now, a second key is don't live for the dot. Live for the line. Your present life is just the smallest blip on the timeline of eternity. If you think of this life kind of like a dot, well, then there is a line that follows out for all of eternity, forever. Now, this is hard to wrap your mind around when we live in a time where, you know, 70, 80, 90 years is a long life. But this life is just the smallest blip on the timeline of eternity, The truth is we are going to spend eternity in God's presence or apart from God's presence. And it depends on where we put our faith and our trust. You see, when we trust in Jesus, when we claim his promises, well, then we have the assurance that we will spend eternity with him in heaven, 100%. Now, once we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, Once we receive his promises and our eternity is certain, well, then we should live with an eternal perspective. We should be more concerned about investing into the line than just into the dot. So stop for a moment and consider, what are you living for? What is your motivation? If you're living for the dot then you're only living for what's temporary. It's going to fade away in an instant. But if you're living for the line, well, then you are interested in making an eternal difference. And you're willing to live open-handed because this life is not all that there is and this life is not your true home. Now, I think it's interesting in the Old Testament, King Solomon taught us many of these same lessons thousands of years ago. Now, you might remember the story of King Solomon. He is the wisest man who ever lived, also one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. You see, he was given the invitation to ask for any blessing from God. And while most of us would probably say, well, you know, make me a quadrillionaire, what King Solomon asked for was wisdom. And God was impressed by his request. And so he gave him this supernatural wisdom, but he also blessed him with incredible wealth. So King Solomon had access to anything and everything that he wanted. And he set out on a quest at one point to try to find meaning. He tried to answer the question that people have been asking for pretty much all of time. What is the meaning of life anyway? 
And so basically, King Solomon set up a lab experiment, and he tried every category of thing that he could think of. And at one point, he tried money and possessions. So he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes, where he documented his search. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he talks about his encounters and the lessons that he learned about his money and his possessions. So he starts out by saying, whoever loves money never has money enough. Probably all experienced that, right? The more you have, the more you want. He goes on and he says, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. The more you have, the less you tend to be satisfied. He says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. The more you have, the more other people want what you have. Maybe he's even talking about taxes, who knows? And then he says, and what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The more you have, the more you'll realize that it really does you no good in the scheme of eternity. Then he says, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. He says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. The more you have, the more damage you can do to yourself by clinging to it too tightly. Or wealth lost to some misfortune. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And then he says, naked a man came from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. The more you have, the more you're going to leave behind. So earlier in the book, Solomon really tells us what he discovered in his search in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. He first says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He could have anything and everything he wanted. But in the next verse, he says, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless a chasing after the wind. See, meaning is not found in our stuff. It's not found in anything of this world. And you see, we don't need to make the same mistakes that Solomon made. We can learn from his wisdom when we remember where our true home is, when we remember that this life is not all that there is, should change our entire perspective, especially about our finances and our possessions. Now, I want to invite you for a moment to close your eyes and to imagine something. Now, don't worry. Nobody's going to try to pick your pocket or anything. Just close your eyes, and I want you to picture in front of you all of the things that are most dear to you, your most prized possessions. For some of you, it might be your home. It might be a cabin. It might be your favorite car. It might be collectibles. It might be your favorite toys. It might be sports equipment. Just imagine all of your most prized possessions all in front of you. 
And now what I want to have you imagine doing is that you have a roll of stickers. And you go to each one of these possessions and you place a sticker on it. And when you look close at this little round sticker, you see one word on every one of them. And the word is temporary. So place that sticker on each one of those prized possessions. Now keep your eyes closed and now think of another scene. Maybe you turn your eyes to the left or to the right. And what you see in front of you are all the people that are closest to your heart. It's your family, it's your friends, maybe a mentor, other people who have had a significant influence on your life. Just imagine them all standing there. And you take out another roll of stickers and gently on each one of these people, you place a sticker. And when you look closely, what it says is eternal. Now you can open your eyes. My question for you is, are you living for what's temporary or for what's eternal? Are you living for the dot or the line? You see, when you invest into God's kingdom, you are investing into people. People have souls that are eternal. And so we are able to make an eternal impact through people. Now, I've described this scene before, but I can't think of a more powerful moment than this. So again, imagine your first minutes in heaven. You walk in, you're scoping things out, it's more than you can take in, and right away someone comes up to you quickly. You might recognize them, you might not recognize them, but this person comes straight up to you and says, you're the reason I'm here. Because you taught my Sunday school class, because you led my small group, because you invested into the ministry of a missionary halfway around the world, because you invited me to come to church, because you invited me to watch church online, you're the reason I'm here. Can you imagine a better moment I'm willing to bet that no one is going to come up to us in heaven and say, you had the coolest car. You went on the best vacations. It's not what matters. Those things will fade away. People are what's most important because people are eternal. Now, what I'm talking about is not giving some huge inheritance to your children because that too will pass away. This is about making an investment in people's souls so that they spend eternity with God in heaven. Are you investing in the dot or the line? And I'm not talking about a line like the Dow Jones or the S&P 500 because those lines will someday come to an end. No, this is about eternity. And we have an invitation to live forever with our God in heaven. Who are you going to bring with you? Now, this principle 
doesn't just apply to our money and our finances. I think this principle applies to every part of our life. It's something that can be lived out wherever we go, whether it's home, whether it's school, whether it's work, or anywhere in between. Living generously is a way of life. Living generously is a cure for the selfishness, the insecurity, the emptiness that we all experience in this world. You see, church, there's an undeniable connection that people who are generous with their money tend to also be generous in all other areas of their life. Generous with their time, with their energy, with their spirit, with their love. And the list goes on and on. There's a connection between living with open hands and every part of our life. Once you start to loosen your grip, everything changes. Suddenly you find yourself taking every opportunity to be generous towards other people. So maybe today, if you're honest, you'd say, you know what, I'm holding way too tightly to something in my life. For some of us, it's our finances. For some of us, it's our time. For some of us, it's a relationship. For some of us, it's our emotions. What if today we would start to loosen our grip and let it make an impact in every single area of our life? I think one of the ways we get in the habit and the rhythm of being generous, radically generous, is through giving our money. To others, supporting God's mission through the church. We have the opportunity to turn up the faucet to overflowing into other people's lives through generosity. Now, the thing about investing into God's kingdom and being a part of his mission is we realize then that we can't just give our leftovers and we can't just leave it up to others, think, you know, well, they have more than I do, so they can do this and I'm just going to sit back and watch. No, this is an opportunity to give our first and our best because that's what God deserves, doesn't he? There's a legend about an ancient village in Spain hundreds of years ago they got notification that the king was going to come and visit for the first time in a thousand years. And you can imagine how this village was celebrating. They were so excited. And they started to think, you know, we have to throw the most wonderful banquet. But there was a big problem. This is a very poor village. They didn't have many resources. But then someone had a brilliant idea. This village was known for their incredible winemaking. Every household would make their own wine so they thought, well, what if we had every household donate one glass of wine and we would combine it together and then the king would come to town and we'd give him this glass of wine and it'll be the best that he's ever tasted. So they were all excited about this. And on the day before the king's visit, they all lined up in the town square. They had this big vat and they had a little staircase where they would climb up one by one and they would pour their glass of wine into the vat. It was their offering for the king. So they're all excited, and the king comes. He rides into town, and they bring him right to the town square, and they say, here's your cup. They give him this beautiful silver cup, and he comes over to this vat, and he opens up the spigot, and he fills it full of wine, and everybody's waiting to see his look on his face, what his reaction's going to be, and he takes a sip of the wine. 
And then he kind of looks puzzled and he takes another sip. You see, all he tastes is water. You see, everybody thought someone else would bring their best. They thought they'd leave it up to others. They'll just bring water and nobody will know the difference. They'll keep it all for themselves. And it brought great dishonor to the king. See, in much the same way, we can't give our leftovers. We can't leave it up to someone else. God deserves our very best because it all belongs to him in the first place. Church, when we remember that this world is not our home and this life is not all that there is, we can't just give our leftovers. We can't just give God a little tip. We can't leave it up to others because God spared no expense for you and for me. The least we can do is invest our best for him. So one more time, what do your finances and your calendar say about your heart? Who or what are you really living for today? Would anybody else be able to tell? Can God tell? I mean, he certainly knows all of those things about you. One of my favorite authors, John Acuff, wrote a short piece called Give the Grave Only Bones. This is what he says. If at the end of my life, the only thing I've accomplished is a comfortable life, my days have been wasted. If at the end of my life, the only thing I've fought for is my own name, my days have been wasted. If at the end of my life, the only thing I've stood for is my own reputation, my days have been wasted. If at the end of my life, the only thing I've traded are works for rewards, my days have been wasted. May we not go to the grave quietly. May we not make refuse of the gifts that we've been given. Arrive empty to the grave, having given away all that you've been given and stewarded all that you have been tasked with. Give the grave only bones. What if we all lived like that? Well, as we close out our time together this week, I want to ask you to pray. Pray about how God is calling you to invest into his kingdom in the coming year. How can you show your faith and your trust for him in how you choose to steward what he's given you? Because I believe one of the key parts of giving is actually having a plan. If you want to set out to give in the way that God has given to us, you can't just wait for the last moment. You can't just give your leftovers. You can't just give a tip. Now have a plan. Making and keeping a plan makes sure that we keep giving at the forefront of our life. Now, I believe one of the greatest investments we can make is to invest into the local church, to come together, to live out God's mission in this place and beyond. So as you pray about a plan for your giving, I wanna encourage you to go to our website, calvary.org give, 
and you can enter a pledge amount. Now we understand maybe this coming year feels uncertain, maybe you fear, fear, feel fearful. Again, this is an opportunity to trust God at his word and to put him first. And you see, when we come together, when we live out his mission together, we can make heaven a more crowded place. And that is the best thing we can ever be involved in. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you are an incredibly generous God. Help us to remember everything belongs to you, everything, including ourselves. God, help us not to be possessive, not to be selfish, not to be short-sighted. Help us to remember that we are citizens of your kingdom and that this life is not all that there is. Help us to live for the line and not for the dot. Help us to invest into people and not things. God, help us to see how you're calling us to have a plan for giving in this coming year. God, you call us to have lives of radical generosity. It's living a countercultural life. And so we need your help. Send your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. But God, we want to help you expand your kingdom. We want to make a difference in people's lives. And we want to make heaven a more crowded place. So we trust all that we have and all of who we are to your care. In the powerful name of Jesus, and let's all say together.